This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Good evening. So thank you to Beis uh, Chaim and to the Chazak organization, as well as to Torah Anytime. Thank you all for coming. Come out to get some inspiration for Sarah's for Tshuva for Yom Kippur. Just to say a little about the Chazak organization. The Chazak organization is known for making, uh, having shiurim. But more than that, they also inspire thousands of Jewish public school students to go and to, they offer different programs for them in different locations. And Chazak does that to inspire these students, these public school students, to get somewhat of a, a Yiddish education. They say over that there's this fellow once walking down the street and he sees his friend David. So he goes over to David, he slaps him on the back, he says, David, how are you doing? And the guy turns around and he looks at him and he says, Well, David, you lost a lot of hair. The guy looks at him and says, You also put on some weight. Well, David, you look so different. Your hair turned white. And the guy looks at him and says, My name is not David. He says, Wow, you changed your name also. That's what happens sometimes it comes to Roshani and Kippur. We think we have to change. We're in the business of changing, and the truth is we are. Which probably explains why many people, even though in English it's called the days of awe, we're really looking just to get by, to get it done with, to get to more comfortable times of sukkahs, and then even after sukkahs and get back to our daily, our daily routine. So what is it about tshuva that is so difficult to do? What is it that is so difficult to change? After all, for everyone here, Yom Kippur, this is not exactly our first Yom Kippur. We've been through this before. One Yom Kippur after another and after another. And sometimes, you know, we feel like that, that chain smoker goes to the doctor and the doctor says, uh, Sir, you better, uh, you better stop smoking. He says, No, nah, it's not so bad. He says, No, you're addicted. You better stop. He says, Doctor, I'm not addicted. I can stop anytime I want. And the doctor says, Really? He goes, Yeah, and I've done it many times. And that's what it is with Shuvah with us. We're not going to do this. We're not going to do that. And it lasts for lucky a month, sometimes a week, sometimes till we get home, Matsi and Kippur. So what is it that we can do that we can actually change, and it will change ourselves? And until we know that, we get a little nervous because we're going in circles. And every year we show up and we say, okay, this year I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do that. We make a Kabbalah. And then we find ourselves just doing the same thing over again. So what is it that we can do to make a change? One of the most important things is to realize is not to throw away the good because of the perfect. Sometimes we feel it's either all or nothing. Either I can change everything, and if I can't change everything, then that's it, it's not worth anything. And it's not true. You don't throw away the good because of the perfect. Because we were never meant to be perfect. Because Baruch was perfect. What we are meant to do is to strive to improve. And that's our perfection. If we strive to improve, then we are doing what we are supposed to be doing. And what is it, how are we supposed to feel if every year we try and every year it doesn't work? So is it worth it? So it was actually once a person walking with his Rebbe near the harbor. And he was complaining to his Rebbe. He says, every year I try to do better and every year it doesn't work. And it lasts for such a short period of time. Is it even worth it? So the Rebbe pointed to a ship that had this big strong rope attached to it. And he asked his Tommy, he says, Tommy, why do you think this ship is here? Why isn't it floating away? He says, what do you mean? There's, there's an anchor. He says, this anchor is in salt water. It's in seawater. And it erodes. And every year, they have to buy a brand new rope, big rope, and put it on the ship, 
a new rope. And that's what holds the ship in. Can you imagine if the owner of the boat would say, every year I have to put on a new rope? I put on a new rope, that's it. And that's the same with us. We try to improve, but every time we improve, we get closer to the Vayin Shalom. And if during the year, the rope erodes, that's why we have these days to once again get a new rope, to once again tie ourselves to Kaddish Baruch But in the Shulchan Aruch, we find something a little different. The Shulchan Aruch tells us, no matter what happens, there are certain things we do during a Sarasim Tshuva. If someone's not careful with Pas Yisrael, or with Chal Yisrael, you should be careful during Sarasim Tshuva. So from the beginning of Rosh Hashanah until then, even Kippur, only Pas Yisrael. It's amazing, because the Shulchan Aruch is giving us a Kabbalah to take upon ourselves with an expiration date. What type of value could that have? Or is that recognition that we're really not so good and we really got to improve for 10 days and that's it? So I remember in Yeshiva every year we have by PTA, I go around to the classes and I tell the Bokhram they have to clean up. You got to put the sneakers away, you got to clean the windowsills, all the food that's all over the place has to be put away. And inevitably one year every Bokhram always asks me, he says, Rabbi, I don't understand. If our parents are coming to the Yeshiva and they want to see what the Yeshiva looks like, why are we pretending? Let them come to the yeshiva, and we'll see what the yeshiva looks like. So I told him over a famous marshal from the Dubin Magid. There was a king coming to town. And they're fixing up the town, they're painting all the houses, they're planting nice flowers, cleaning the streets. And this little girl looks at her mother and says, Ma, what are we doing? It looks so beautiful, why are we painting all the houses? She says, what do you mean, the king's coming, we have to honor the king, the king's coming. She says, Ma, I don't understand. If the king wants to see how we live, why don't we show the king how we live? Why are we pretending? We don't paint our houses every week. We don't always have these flowers, and the streets are definitely not swept every day. So she looks at her little daughter and says, Mamala, if the king wanted to know how we live regularly, he would have just come to us unannounced. He would have showed up. The king gave us two months' warning that he's coming. What the king wants to see is, how do we prepare for the king when we know the king is coming? And I told him the same thing. Our parents can come to, to the yeshiva to see what the building looks like or what's going on all the time. But when we know they're coming and they know they're coming, then they want to see how do we prepare for them. And it's the same thing with us. We obviously have access to our Kodesh Baruch Hu the whole year. We can always dive into Hashem. But these days the Kodesh Baruch Hu says, I'm much closer to you. So Kodesh Baruch Hu wants to see how do you prepare when a Kodesh Baruch Hu is coming? How do you prepare when He's really going to be right here with us? Which is why these are Kabbalahs we take upon ourselves even though it has an expiration date. To show Kodesh Baruch Hu, we have it with us. We can go and prepare for you to come. But of course the catch is it has to be something that we can sustain. A Kabbalah that we can keep is also very valuable. And they say, during the Gulf War, Mount Ezeo Solomon went to Yisrael to speak to Roshach. And he asked Roshach, he said, you know, a lot of people are coming over to me and they asked me what they should do. So I want to come to the Roshiva to ask the Roshiva what to do. So Roshiva spoke to him, they should make a small Kabbalah, fine. When, when Rav Matis Yol got up to leave, Roshach said, stay here, stay here. Okay, so he stayed there. And meanwhile, people are coming in, the line doesn't end, and they're all coming in. Evidently, Roshach wanted Rav Matis Yol Solomon, he wanted Rav Matis Yol Solomon to see how to deal with the Eilam when they come to seek Das Tayra. And after a short period of time, he noticed that Rav Shach was giving very similar advice to everybody. 
And he was telling them all to mukabal a small Kabbalah. And every single person would always say the same thing. Like what? So Shach would say, a small Kabbalah. And they would say, well, what should we do? So Shach would say, should bench with a bencher. Bench with a bencher, bench with a bencher. So at one point, Matisheu Solomon turns to the Roshivit of Shach and says, the bench with a bencher, there are missiles falling, people are, are, are nervous for their lives. Bench with a bencher, that's what it is. So he told them, he said, in Vilna, the Rav of Vilna was of Chaim Meizer Grudensky. And Rav Chaim Meizer was a God Ladar, and his house was, was the busiest house around. People were coming and going, there were Shailas, serious, serious questions going on. And Rav Chaim Meizer could be busy writing a tshuva with one hand, answering someone else in a different Shaila, speaking and learning to someone else. Unbelievable Tam Chacham, and obviously a genius. Tremendous amount of money passed through his hands as well. And he would keep copious notes exactly who gave and who he gave to. One day, someone brought in a lot of money, and he wanted to write it down. So he asked one of the Bochrim who was in his house, please bring me the pinkers, bring me the notebook. They went to get the notebook, and they couldn't find it. They started looking all over the house. They went to the Rebbe, they couldn't find it. They were getting very nervous, they didn't know what to do. And Chaim says, no, I'm waiting. So finally, one Bochrim says, we can't find it. Getting ready for it, Chaim is going to say, what do you mean, all the information's in there. So Chaim says, okay, fine, bring me an empty one. They brought him an empty one, and he sits down, and he starts to write over from the beginning all the records that were written down previously. He starts by memory to write them all down. And sure enough, eight months later, they found the old notebook, and of course, one of the Bachar went, and the first thing is, he checked to see how accurate it was, and it was perfect. Rav Shach said that Rav Chaim Meizer never benched without a bencher. He's such a genius who knows everything. He obviously knows every word in benching with all the Kavanas, and he benches with a bencher, it's Kedai to bench with a bencher. He says, but, I have to tell you, it's a very small Kabbalah. My Kabbalah, Rav Shach said, is only at home. I only bench with a bencher at home. Not, I didn't say I always bench with a bencher. Only with a bencher at home. Oh, and only on Shabbos. Only on Shabbos. I'm going to bench with a bencher only on Shabbos. Matisheu said, that's it? He says, well, only the first bracha. Because yeah, only the first bracha, only at home, only on Shabbos. And this way I have a chance to keep the Kabbalah. And this is from Rav Shach. So when we want to take upon a Kabbalah, the advice is always take something very, very small, as small as you can think of, and then cut it in half. Perhaps one more time you cut it in half. And then at least you'll have a Kabbalah that you can take with you. But we resist this. Because we know that we're not going to live forever. And if all we do is take small Kabbalahs, we all know that we have a lot to change. So what's going to be? We're going to turn 85 years old, and wow, our whole life we bench from a bench or the whole benching. That was our, our whole thing. What about all the other medias that we have to work on? So we resist it. We want to take big Kabbalists, but we see that it has to take something small. But in order to satisfy both desires, perhaps what we should do is take a Kabbalah that may be small, but has tremendous and gigantic ramifications. What type of Kabbalah could we take that's small, manageable, and yet the ramifications of such a Kabbalah would be gigantic? What could that be? As we think as follows, many things in this world are created for the simple reason for us to understand what really goes on in Shemayim and how to relate to it. For example, Shabbos. What's Shabbos? Shabbos is me'ein elam 
Shabbos is a day that we can appreciate what it means to grow close to Kodesh Baruch Hu. We don't work, we, we focus on Rabbi Nishayim, that's what we do on Shabbos. And there are other things as well that's Me'ena Elam For example, a parent's love to a child. What's a parent's love to a child? Why did Kodesh Baruch Hu make parents and children? So we can understand, as a parent, when a parent loves a child, we can have a little sliver of an understanding of a Kodesh Baruch Hu's love to us. Because only that, that tremendous love that a parent has to a child. So that's why there is such a thing. In history, there was something called the Trojan horse. Trojan horse, something built, the Greeks were fighting against Troy. And they were fighting for 10 years, they couldn't get in. And finally the Greeks built this massive horse. Massive horse that they were going to use as a battering ram to break into the city. And after they built it, they're standing there, a week goes by, another week goes by. And then the people in Troy watch as finally all the Greek soldiers start to go off. They go onto the ship and they sail away. The people of Troy are thrilled. They're victorious. They finally got rid of the Greeks. And they left their equipment here. They quickly opened up the doors. They brought in the Trojan horse. And there was a victory parade. Well, that night, we all know the story inside the Trojan horse, were many, many Greek soldiers hiding inside the hollow of this horse. And at night, they crept out of this horse, they opened up the doors, the Greek soldiers, of course, were sailing back, they went inside, and they completely conquered the city of Troy. That is not a true story, it's a fable. What are we supposed to learn from that? So we can take a look at there are certain things that are so important for the world to exist, that Baruch created it before the world was created. One of those things is tshuva. Tshuva cannot exi- the world cannot exist without the ability for us to do tshuva. It's amazing if Farshim speak out. Tshuva is really something that only applies to Yidin. A guy could defer punishment. He doesn't have a, the concept of tshuva. That's for a Yid. Because we're children to Rabbi Yishlael. So what do we learn now from this Trojan horse? So I would think that when a Kashmir created the world, he also created it with a Trojan horse. You know, they make video games. The producers of these video games know that the video game is going to become, if it works, it'll become famous for two months, five months, attention spans are very small nowadays, very short. So how long could it be already? And then people get bored of it. So the producers, the programmers, put in a Trojan horse, a little back door, where later on with money, you can buy, and you can buy extra lives or extra games. When you play against somebody, you'll win them. HaKadosh Baruch put the same thing in the world. He put, there's a way to do tshuva through the back door. There's a way to do tshuva with a Trojan horse. There's a way to do tshuva that HaKadosh Baruch looks at you and says, oh, that's what I'm looking for. And what is that way? So if you think about it, what's a parent's biggest nachas? A parent's biggest nachas is when he sees his children getting along. And what's a parent's biggest source of pain, his biggest sorrow? Is when he sees his children fighting. Same people, they're just fighting. The kid's not getting along. Amazing, there's Yashalmi in the beginning of Peya, Perak Aleph, Wacha Aleph. Yashalmi writes... Why is it that in the times of David and Melech that there were people, even though he's very successful, there were people who died in the war. And it says because the people spoke Lashon Har and there was Machlekes. And therefore people died in the war. On the other hand, by Achav, when Christ was doing terrible of Zara, they were successful, they were winning the wars. It says Yerushalmi and Peah, Mutav Lama Yitzelem Beheichel Melaharbeis Machlekes Beyisrael. HaKadosh Baruch Hu would rather you put a tzel and put a Vedah in the base of Migdash 
than increasing Mechleikas in Klai Yisrael. Nobody, when they have a Mechleikas with someone, thinks for a second they would do a Vaidazara. But that's what a Kosh Baruch would rather. Mutav, Lahamait, Salem, Ba'echel, Laharvest, Mechleikas, Be'Yisrael. We see this by davening. After, after laning, we say a few Yiratzins. Yiratzin, Yiratzin, Yiratzin. The last one, we don't say Yiratzin. We say, Echenu, Obanei Yisrael. Why do we do that? Because if Christ was going to be together, there's no need to say Yiratzin. It's automatically the will of a Kaddish Baruch Hu. Once Christ gets together. And that's something that we can do. Because there's an unbelievable Zayar in the beginning of Parshas Truma. I'll quote you the Zayar. It's an amazing Zayar to walk around with. The beginning of Parshas Truma. Netzach Ruchimo de Bonov, Lirchimo de Dino. Netzach Ruchimo, Rikhma de Bonov, Lirchimo de Dino. Akash Borhu would rather, even though Akash Borhu is a Melech Ayat Stockholm Mishpat, Akash Borhu says, The love over my children, beat and conquer my love for Din. If I have a choice to deal with the love of my children or the love of Din, hands down, the love of my children will win. Who wants to get in the way between the love of a Kaddish Baruch Hu and his children? Hashem is our father, and we're his children. Can you imagine a parent, you work hard all week, you work hard all day, by the time you come home, your kids are asleep. So what do you do? They're sleeping, you go inside, and before you come home, your wife calls you up, the kids are fighting, moving to this, and later did that, and Shimon did this, and you're on the phone, and you got to scream at them. And you come home, and they're sleeping. So what do you do? You go to the bed, sit on his bed, he tussles his hair, touch his cheek, give him a kiss. What happened to everything he did earlier that day? It doesn't matter. You're looking at him, and your love for him is so tremendous. The love we have for our children does not compare to the love HaKadosh Baruch Hu has for us. And if we want to go and do that netzach, Rikhma de Banov, we have to make sure that we have that love. They say over that Ruvain was a very poor person. And Baruch Hashem, he was making a hasna. But he needed money for the hasna. So he had no choice, he works very hard. But he knew he had a wealthy brother, Shimon. Shimon lives in the next town. He has no choice. He goes to visit his brother, Shimon. He comes to the town, he knocks on his door. Beautiful palatial home. And a butler opens up the door and he says, yes, can I help you? He says, yeah, I'm Ruvain. I'm here to see my brother Shimon. One second, please. And a few minutes later, Shimon comes running. Oh, my brother Ruvain, come in, come in. How are you? What's doing? How's everything going? How the wife? How the kids? And he starts to speak to him. And then after a few minutes, Ruvain has no choice. He's got to do what he came for. So my dear brother Ruvain, you know I'm making a chasna. He says, yeah, of course, of course. I'm going to come. We're so excited. He says, well... I need some money to make the chasna. Maybe you can help me out. All of a sudden, Shimon's demeanor changes. He gets red in the face. You're lazy, good for nothing. You want money? Go to work. How do you think I have money? Get out. He throws him out. Ruben's sitting outside and he's crying. His last hope from Shimon. His father lives in the same town as his parents. On the way back, he stops off to his parents and tells his parents what happened. His father doesn't have money, gives him a few dollars. And the city says, no, let's, you know, Kosh Baruch will help. What can I do? Fine. A few days later, Shimon goes to visit his father. He knocks on the door. There's no answer. Knocks on the door again. No answer. Knocks the third time a little louder. He's getting nervous. My father, okay? So he's banging on the door. He says, Tati, Tati, it's Shimon. Are you okay? The windows from the second floor open up. And a fellow looks outside. He goes, who's there? 
says, me, Shimon, Shimon, your son. He says, I don't have a son named Shimon. <laughs> Tati, you okay? Of course, me, Shimon, your son. So he looks down and he says, young man, I have two children, Ruvain and Shimon. If Ruvain's not your brother, then you can't be my son, Shimon. That's what he told him. So how is it by us that if we go and we look at bad at somebody, at a fellow Yid, and we look down at a fellow Yid, and we speak bad about a fellow Yid, and Kosh Baruch Hu says, then we come to Kosh Baruch and we say, Avinu Shabbat Shemayim, Karachim of Albanim, Avinu Shabbat Shemayim. Hashem says, who are you again? You're just doing that to my other kid? That's what you're doing to my son? That's what you're doing to my daughter? I don't know who you are. First, let's be so careful when we present ourselves to the Kaddish Baruch Hu, that if we want to be considered His children, so we can get what the Zayar said of Netzach, Rikhma Dabanov, we have to make sure that if we want to be Kaddish Baruch Hu's child, that we treat His children the way a parent wants his child to be, tra- to be treated. What happens if you're interacting with someone who really does affairs? He really does affairs. He's not, he's not a good guy. He does affairs. What do you do then? So we know that Rizal was known that the Rizal can look at somebody and he can see on his face what affairs the person did. Can you imagine every time the Rizal looked at somebody and he sees all those affairs written on his face? And yet the Rizal is the very same person who said that before Davin we should start off to say, how did the two go together? How did the Rizal say, when he sees on the guy all the various that the person did? Fresh, every day. The answer is, he did something that every spouse knows they have to do. Every husband and wife knows for a successful marriage they have to do. And every teacher, every Rebbe knows they have to do. They have to be judiciously blind. You don't see everything. You don't comment on everything. You don't pick up on everything. Rav Noach Weinberg would often say, he says, who knows you the most? Your parents. Your parents know you. You can't hide. They know everything about you. Your parents know you the most. Who loves you the most? Your parents love you the most. And who knows your faults the most? Your parents. How does that work? If your parents know all your faults. Why do they love you? Because one has nothing to do with the other. If there's an intrinsic love in somebody, then it doesn't matter what the person's faults are. And therefore, if we go and we look at people, we don't have to look at what they did wrong. We can look at what they're doing right. The Nukuda Taiva, and the Kodesh says, Oh, I need you. You're going into the plus column. But if you're someone, I've always got to go, and there are people crying to me because of what you're doing to them. My other children are crying, saying, This person is bothering them. This person is stealing from them. This person is embarrassing them. Hashem says, so, so what do I need you? You're not part of the family. Puts the person in the other column. The person is very, very careful. And let's say you think the person I'm looking at, okay, that's by a regular person who does, you know, stamavirus. What about my friend? Because my friend, he does, I really, I know my friend, he does the real virus. He's, he's the hardcore. What do you do with them? So, you have to work harder to find the Nakuda Taiva. You say the 1950s and 1960s, the, uh, the state of Israel would raise money by selling bonds. And they would come to America, to the United States, and have dinners all over the place, and people would come and they would buy these Israeli bonds, you'd make some money off it. Sometimes it was a risk, you didn't know if the, if the country would be there next year. One time in Chicago, word got out, there's going to be a big, big, fancy dinner, because the president of Israel himself is coming. So, 
all these people who showed up, all these high-heeled and well-heeled uh, people in society, they all showed up. And unfortunately, the, the menu and the program was not one where you would actually find a benter to be comfortable, or even a firm person. Unfortunately, they weren't serving food that was, uh, let's just say, uh, kosher, and the activities were not so kosher. Which is why some people were very surprised when all of a sudden they saw Rav Mendel Kaplan. At that time, the Shiva Skokie walk in, Mendel Kaplan, and a nice rabbinical hat, a langer echel, nice white beard, and he's inside. So one of the philanthropists from Chicago was there, and he sees him, and he goes over to him, he says, Rabbi Kaplan, so nice to see you here. And Rabbi Kaplan says, it's very nice to be here. He says, I don't think you came to uh, partake of the refreshments. He goes, no. You didn't come here for the dancing. He says, no. So then why are you here? He says, I'll tell you why I'm here. I came to watch the children of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov line up with their checkbooks to give tzedakah to help their fellow Achenu B'nai Yisrael in Eretz Yisrael. And I'm sitting here watching, mesmerized and amazed, how people can go and give money to the fellow brothers and sisters whom they ever met in a country 6,000 miles away and to give them money. And that's why I'm here. And now this philanthropist understood the godless of Rav Kaplan. He didn't have to look at Nebuch, the shellfish that they were eating, and the type of dancing they were doing. That's not his cheshman. But he looked at them to see, wow, they're giving tzedakah to help be the Neretz Yisrael. And that is what it means to look at the Nekud HaTayvah, to look at, the, at, at the, the good part of every yid. And let's say you do that, and it still doesn't work. You're still looking, you're still looking, you're still looking. So by then already we have to come on to the Gemara. If you can't find anything, you have to look at the Gemara, well-known Gemara, in Sanhedrin, Laman Zayin, Amad Bey, Amad Aleph. It's a famous thing, we all leave pomegranates on Rosh Hashanah. Why do we pomegranates on Rosh Hashanah? We pomegranates on Rosh Hashanah, the Gemara tells us, Meshlakish Omar, Ma Bepelach Harimoyin, Rakaseh, just like a section of pomegranates are your temples, Afilu, Rekonin, Shabach, Malayin, Mitzvah, Karimoyin. Even the empty ones are full of mitzvahs like a pomegranate. Now, I know by me in class all the time, there's always one kid who said, oh, we counted it, and there's not 613. And then others say, it doesn't mean there's 613. It just means there's a lot. Or there's many, or you should. So I do tell them, many years ago I saw a study. This is a study done by the trade group of pomegranate growers from around the world. And many years ago they took a survey. I'll just read you quickly. They had... The United States, Singapore, Iran, Spain, Turkey, and Brazil. And they sampled a whole bunch for the United States. And they had the minimum seeds was 286. Maximum seeds was 1,370. And the average was 680, not 613. Singapore, there was a, the minimum was 339. The max was 579. Mm-hmm. Iran, 165. The max was 1263. And it goes on different countries. However, the study went and he added up the average of all the countries. If you add up the average of all the countries, the average is to be 613. Which means the average pomegranate of the world is taka 613. That's what the Gemara says. We have all mitzvahs. But there's another shot in the Gemara. The Gemara continues one more line. That was Reish Lakish. Reb Zeir says something different. Reb Zeir Omar Mehacha V'yarech Ezreich B'gadav Pasuk's talking about when Rivka tells Yaakov, that Esau is coming because Yitzchak just told Esau to go shecht 
an animal for him, he's going to give him the brachas. She quickly goes and shech two goats, and she puts on the clothing onto on to Yaakov. Yaakov says, he's going to feel me, I'm smooth. Don't worry, she put on this clothing on him, and he goes into his father. Come close, and kiss me. The Yigashi comes close, and he kisses him. And he smells the, the smell of his clothing, and he blesses him. The smell of my son is like the smell of a field that Hashem blessed. So Rashi, what's going on over here? There's no smell worse than the smell of goat skin, and that's what he was wearing. The smell of Ganadin came in with Yaakov. Now, he never smelled Yaakov before. This happens now. He smelled the smell of Ganadin. So there's different answers. I can just read what the Gemara says. How do we know that Kaiso is intrinsically good? From here. He smelled the, the smell of his clothing. Don't say smell the smell of his clothing because that was no Reach Ra. There's no smell worse than that. Ella Baigdav. You can smell his rebellious, the fact that he rebels. Says, really? And that's the smell of a good smell? Says the Gemara, yeah. Because even in the worst Yid, so to speak, even in the Yid who rebels, you can still find mitzvahs. Even the Yid who rebels against the Torah, you can still find mitzvahs. And that's how we eat the pomegranates. You eat the pomegranates to realize that every single Yid has mitzvahs inside of him. No matter how bad it looks, no matter what he does, Inside of him, the mitzvahs. You have to look. You have to look. Many years ago, I had a kid in my class who said, I don't understand why everybody's pomegranate. It's so bitter. And I was trying to figure out, what is it? Until he explained once. He says, what do you mean? We take the white stuff, we grind it up, we eat it. It tastes disgusting. I said, you don't eat the white stuff. You eat the red seeds. No, those are seeds. My father says you throw that out. That's the problem. If you look at the wrong thing, it's very bitter. But if you find the right thing, the, the, the seeds of the pomegranate, then it's taka very sweet. And what happens if you still don't find? You look and you look and you look and you don't see. So then already, then already you yourself have to put on mommy glasses. Then you already have to mommish look at every person as if you're looking at your own child. In 1973, unfortunately there was the Yom Kippur War. Eretz Yisrael was attacked by the Arabs once again. And things were not going well for the Yidden. And there were many people who were destroyed in tanks. The tanks were on the front line. And Rishol Mayor Lau, at that time he was in Tel Aviv, wanted to do something. He was a chaplain, but he couldn't go out. He was in Kippur, and, and he, they didn't know where to send him. So he shows up to the command center in Tel Aviv. He says, I want to help. What should I do? So he said, you know what? You go to the hospital in Ichalov. The Ichalov hospital was a burn center. And unfortunately, many of the soldiers who were seriously wounded were wounded because they were stuck in tanks that were hit, and they were burned. So he goes inside, and he starts to go from patient to patient, Taka will burn very badly. And he hears terrible, terrible yelling from one room. So he goes inside the room, and he sees there's a bunch of doctors there, some other people there, and he goes over to the person, and the person's screaming and yelling, and he's completely burnt. And they're trying to help him out and calm down, you'll feel better, and they're giving him morphine, and another shot, and another shot of morphine, and it's not helping, he's screaming, he's completely burnt from head to toe, wherever he lies. He's being affected by it. And they're trying to put on compressors and cold. Nothing works. The doctors say, look, you're disturbing yourself. You're disturbing others. You've got to stop. 
Of course, he didn't stop. And eventually, the doctors moved on to the next. Unfortunately, there were many people there. And there's one person there, staying there, trying to speak to him. And Bilal himself moved on to the next room. About five minutes later, all of a sudden, the screaming stops. And as soon as the screaming stopped, Rebelau knew that, that it's finished. He rushes back, assuming that the lady was there was his mother, and now she's dealing with, unfortunately, a dead child. He rushes back, and here's the mother sitting there with tears coming down, and he looks, and he's not dead. He's, he's, he's sleeping. He turns to the mother and says, What happened? What did you do? He says, Rabbi, my son was burned from head to toe. I couldn't touch him anywhere. Anywhere I touched him, it, it, it hurt him more. He says, so what would you do? He says, I found on the back of his right knee, about three inches by three inches, that wasn't burnt. His leg must have been bent at the time, and he wasn't burnt. I found those three inches by three inches, and I started caressing it. I said, it's okay. Mommy's here. Mommy's here. It's okay. And as soon as I started touching him, he was so exhausted, he fell asleep. And Rilao said, you see the difference of a parent to a child, as opposed to a person to, to a person. A parent to a child doesn't give up. You try, you try, the doctors left, or Bilal left, everyone left. We can't do anything for him. We gave him the shots, we told him, we explained to him. The mother doesn't leave him. The mother searched and searched, and she found the place, and she comforted him. And we all want the Kodesh Baruch to do that to us. We all want that from the Kodesh Baruch they say that Shlomo Karlbach, many years ago, in the late 60s, he was invited upstate to a prison for Hanukkah to give chizik. Baruch Hashem, there was a small island. So someone said, what are you going up for? You have maybe five, six people up there, Baruch Hashem. He says, for one person I'll go. And he brought along two other friends, his guitar, a box of donuts, and he goes up there. He goes up there, they screen him, he goes inside. And of course he goes over to each person over there, ah, my holy brother, and he gives him a big hug. And they lit Hanukkah licht, and they give him donuts, and they sang. Right? He gives him a big hug again, and he starts to leave. Remember, he has to leave them there, of course, he starts to leave. As he's walking out, getting closer to the door, he hears footsteps behind him, loud footsteps. And he had two policemen with him. They turn around, he turns around, and he sees this big, burly person running after him. So the policemen go in front of him, and the guy stops he says, Rabbi, can I speak to you for a second? He looks at the policeman, they look at him, he goes, yeah, of course. He walks over to me, he says, Rabbi, I want you to know, the hug you gave me was the first hug I ever got. I want you to know, if I ever would have gotten a hug before, I can promise you I wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't have done what I did if I ever got a hug before. Can you please give me another hug? He says, of course, and he went over and gave him a big hug. Who doesn't want that hug from the Rabbani Shalom? We're going into Yom Kippur, and we want it. We come to the Rabbani Shalom and say, give me a hug. God says, I want to give you a hug. But look what you just did to my son. Look what you just did to my daughter. How could I give you a hug like that? So Chas Hashem, we should be in that position. And therefore, whenever we see someone doing something, we have to look at him as a mother to look to, to a child. Because whatever a mother looks at a child, it's always good. You know, a few years ago, there were unfortunately a neighbor in Eretz Yisrael that was in terrible tragedies. 
was a child who died, someone was hit by a car, bad things going on. They got together and they said, we have to do something. So they all solicited from different people, different Kabbalists, what to do. And they came to Reinleif Steinman to get his brachen to tell him what they decided. So Reinleif says, let me hear your Kabbalists. So one person said, we're discussing, one said we should bake challahs, the women should bake challahs and take challah together. Someone else said, I think it's more important to light candles early Erev Shabbos. Someone else said, we should have to say their Erev Shabbos. And Byron Leif says, you really, really want to do something? You ready? He says, yeah. He goes, but you have to take something that's really going to solve it. He says, okay. He says, you want my advice, what I suggest? Next time one of your neighbors want to make an addition to their apartment, don't argue. Don't protest. Let them do it. Let them do it. And he said, that, that, that no, 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 nothing, you know, ruchnius. He says, that's the biggest ruchnius thing you can do. Let someone else enjoy. It's blocking your window. Work it out. Be accommodating to the other person. If it was your own child building that porch, you would be upset at him. That's how you have to look at it. Because the closer the relative is, the more important there is to be shalom. And the harder it is to be shalom. It's very easy to be nice to the bus driver. It's much harder. And when you see someone, you nitpick, that makes it very difficult. You know, say over there was an elderly couple who was going shopping. And the guy sees his wife swipes a can of peaches and she sticks it into her pocket. Well, this lady obviously wasn't aware there's cameras all over the place. They walk out of the supermarket and she gets arrested. Two days later, they drag her in front of the judge. And of course, her husband's there for support. And the judge says, you're accused of stealing a can of peaches. And we have the proof. She admitted to it. So the judge says, okay. For every peach that was in the can... There were six peaches in the can. You're going to get six nights in jail. And the husband says, Your Honor, she also stole a can of peas. If you go nitpick, you can go and take on, take on people like that. And you're going to go and, and just see the bad in everybody. And that's something that you can't do. You can't, you can't nitpick on that way. And this is why it's so important to have shalom, especially by the brothers. There was a few years ago. There was a, a family that had two soldiers in the Israeli army. And like most countries in the world, they don't allow brothers to fight together. Because if something happens to a child, it's bad enough. But to come to parents and say they lost both children is, is, is an impossible situation. And this family found out during the Lebanon War that not only are there two children, there are two sons in the same battalion, but they found that they're fighting in the same tank. And they didn't know what to do. And they tried to make phone calls, and they weren't getting anywhere. And they came to Rabbi Yashav. And they asked Rabbi Yashav what to do. So Rabbi Yashav says, tell me, your, brother, your sons get along? He says, yeah, they're very, very close. He says, if you take my suggestion, keep them in the tank together. There's no bigger shmira than two brothers getting along. That's what he told them. And that's what they did. And if it's still difficult, and if it's still difficult to go and to find that, then we have to be careful with what we daven. Because in the first Tefillin Shemin we start off, we're going through it, we're asking Hashem, and then we want Hashem to send us a Redeemer, send us Mashiach. We say, Remember the Chasadim of our Avais. And then we switch. And then we say, Hashem, remember the Chasadim of my fathers, and bring the Redeemer to their grandsons. That's the same. Either remember the chasadim of the grandparents and redeem the grandsons, 
remember the chesedim of our fathers and redeem their sons. Why is it chazay alves and levnei v'nehem? The answer is, humans are very different than animals. Humans love their children, and animals love their children. But animals have no connection to their grandchildren. Only humans have a connection to their grandchildren. But all parents discipline their children. If they do something wrong, they'll get disciplined. Why? Because the parent loves them. But the parent also wants the child to grow up, to be a productive member of society. You can't just let them do whatever they want. They'll be a pair of them. Yet when they go to the grandparents' house, all of a sudden, they don't have to go to sleep in time, they can eat nash, they don't have to brush their teeth. Why? Do the grandparents not love them as much as the parents? The answer is the grandparents have so much love for them that they can't see when they do something wrong. They're blinded by their love by them. And therefore, they don't discipline them. The parents have to discipline them, not the grandparents. So we down to the Vayishalayim. We tell them, Zeichachaz de'avais. But at the end of the day, treat us, we may be gayal, because, bro, don't look at all the things. We had enough discipline over the past 2,000 years. At this time, look at us like grandchildren. The Milchas Elazar, right before Tikkias, he got up. He said, I don't know if I can blow Shaifer. I did an Avera. He starts crying. What Avera did Milchas Elazar do that he said? He says, you know, I have a private minion during Elul. And then I'm davening every day, like we do all across Kaisal, I build a shaifer. And my son, my grandson, who today is the, the present Minkachar Rebbe, my grandson, he enjoys it very much. And he likes to hear me blow, and I blow, and he loves it. He said, Erev Rosh Hashanah, davening was over, and davening was over. My grandson, he's a little boy, he's three years old, he's looking at me. He says, Aidy, why don't you blow shaifer? I explained to him, Erev Rosh Hashanah, we don't blow shaifer. So what do you don't blow Shafer? Why not? I love to hear you blow Shafer. I started to explain to him the Satan, the Yitzhar, to mix him up. He started crying. He says, Zaydi, blow the Shafer. I said, no, you're not allowed. He started crying. He's on the floor. He's kicking. Rabbi Yisrael, what should I say? I couldn't hold myself back and I blew the Shafer. I know that's not what you're supposed to do. But I couldn't hold myself back. Rabbi Yisrael, that was my Avera. He says, look at us the same way and bring maybe Gail of Nei Redeem us like grandchildren and not like children. So you shouldn't be so strict with us. And the question is, do we feel that way in our heart? How do we feel this in our heart? You know, there was a, a fellow who had a very fancy car. He was driving somewhere and he needed a drink. So he stopped off in a convenience store and it wasn't such a good neighborhood. Gets out of his fancy car, goes into the convenience store to buy his drink. He comes out. And there's a kid dressed very shabbily, shirt way too big, shoes very worn out, and he's looking at him, and he's staring at him, staring at the car. So the guy looks at the kid and says, looking at the car? The kid goes, yeah. He says, nice car, huh? He goes, yeah. He goes, my brother bought it for me. The kid looks and says, wow, I wish, the guy says, I know what he's going to say, you know, what's what's he going to say? I wish my brother bought, bought me such a car. And the kid says, wow, I wish when I grow up, I could be such a brother and buy one for him. The guy was so shocked. He says, want to ride? He goes, yeah. Come, let me get, get to the car. He says, can you drive two blocks and take a left? So the guy says, figuring, okay, he wants to show off. He's in a fancy car. We drive down the block. We take the left. He says, one second. He runs into the house. Obviously, he wants to show his family. 
And he comes out with his older brother holding on to him. He can barely walk. He's like a cripple and he can't walk. He's handicapped. And he points to the car and he points to the guy driving. He says, see that guy? You see the fancy car? His brother bought him that car. And one day when I get older, I'm going to buy you a car so you can also get around. The question is, when we hear something, what do we think to ourselves? Wow, I wish I had a brother like that. Or do we think to ourselves, wow, I wish I could be a brother like that. And that's how you can test yourself. Whenever you hear something good, what do you think? I wish I could be a brother like that. I wish I had a brother like that. So I'm going to just end off with one more story. There were two business partners. And they were partners for many years. And one guy would go out and sell. He was a salesman. Another person would work in the store. And they were together for 25 years. And one day, one of the partners is coming back. And he, has all the, he went out selling. And he has a whole big bag of money. And he thinks to himself, you know, it's crazy. I travel for weeks. I miss my family and my kids. My partner, he gets to sleep at home. Okay, he works in the store, but he's with his family. Why should we split the money? He took all the money, he buried it. Then he took his clothing and he made rips in it and he tore it. And he comes back and he tells his partner, I'm so sorry, I was attacked, I was mugged. And they took all the money and he starts crying. The partner says, you okay, you okay? He goes, yeah, I'm okay. He says, why are you crying so much? He says, what do you mean all the money? I promise I'll pay you back if it takes you to my last day. And the partner looks and says, what are you talking about? You were mugged. It's okay. We'll make more money. It's fine. Really? Oh, well, thank you so much. I just can't believe it happened. A few days pass. Another partner starts to look at him. He says, you know, for a guy who lost so much money, he doesn't look so sad. He starts to wonder, maybe this is not so uh, exactly what he said. And he goes over to him and he says, can you again tell me the story what happened? And he repeats how he's walking, how he was mugged. And again, he starts to cry. He says, well, you don't believe me? I promise I'll pay you back then if you don't believe me. He says, no, I believe you, I believe you. This went on another two weeks. Every time he sees him, he's a little too happy. He says, you know what? Let's go to the Rebbe. And they went to the original Rebbe. And they come there and they tell him the story. So the Rebbe says, tell me the story. So he tells him the whole story. He says, tell me the story again. He tells him the story again. And he's crying and he's crying. Rabbi, I can't believe. Okay, if I have to pay him back, but I'm going to lose a friendship of 25 years. How could it be? And he's crying and he's crying. The rebel looks and says, you thief, you gotta give him back the money. The guy was so frightened, he admitted to it. He says, okay, okay, I'll give him back the money. He walks out, and the chassidim, of course, say, ah, Ruch HaKadosh, a maifus. He says, no maifus. He says, what do you mean? How do you know he's a gana? He says, we see in Navi that Hannah had no children. And Hannah went to Davin, and she was davening, and Eli came Caesar, and she's saying words, she's mouthing stuff, but she's not saying anything. And Eli says, you shikr, go home. And she looks at him and says, shikr? She goes, I'm a woman in pain. I have no children. I'm diving to Hashem. So what's Eli's response? <gasps> okay, you can go home. Your tefillahs are answered. And she goes home. So the Rebbe asked, that's Eli's response. <laughs> She's in pain. What, what, what happened? What changed? He thought she was a shikr. She says, Eli sees a lady. And she's standing by the Mishkan. She's davening. And he's standing there and it didn't bother him. How could it be, he thinks to himself, there's a lady here, crying her heart out, didn't bother me. Eli says, it must be, she's not crying her heart out, she's a shikr. She's sitting here, she's a shikr, she doesn't know what she's doing. Go home, you're a shikr. Then she tells me, no, 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 I'm not a shikr, I'm in pain, I have no children, she's crying from pain. So Eli said, oh, how could it be? 
There's a Basi stroll here. She's crying. It doesn't bother me. And he said, the only solution is that Kosh Baruch already promised her children. She thinks she's in pain. But really, really she's going to have a child already. So she can go home and she can have the child. And that's the question. When we see another Yid, when we see another Yid and they're in pain, something's wrong, we say, oh, okay. Or do we think to ourselves, wow, if it bothers me, it must bother me. If it bothers that person, it must, bo- it must bother me. It must bother me as well. Therefore, a person has to realize when it comes to Roshan, it comes to Yom Kippur, and we want to have what that Zayar said, to get the Rachman of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, as his children, we have to make sure that we are, we act like his children. And if a person has a difficult time with that, we think, I did this last year, I did it two years ago, I did it three years ago, it's not going to work. Someone says the exact same thing as you. Chazal tell us that the Malachim say the same thing. We're in Shul Davening, I'm going to be better, I'm going to be better, I'm going to be better. And Malachim go, come on. Come on, you can't, come on, every year? You can't fall for that. We're Malachim, we know they're lying. You're Hashem, you know they're lying. Because I'll tell us that the Kodesh Baruch looks at the Malachim and says, really? Where were you a few months ago by the Seder? At the end of the Seder, after he sat and he did all the mitzvahs, well, how does every year end their Seder? L'shona habav Yerushalayim. Said the Kodesh Baruch this year it said last Pesach, L'shona habav Yerushalayim. Did I listen? Says the Kodesh Baruch did I bring him to Yerushalayim? Did I bring Mashiach? Did I build a base of Mikdash? But guess what? He also said it two years ago. And two years ago, I didn't do it. And he also said the Shon about three years ago, and five years ago, and 25 years ago. And I didn't do it for him. And yet every year again he said, Lashon of Yishalayim, because the Yid has trust in me, the Yishalayim says. How could it be that Yid has trust in me? And I don't have trust in them. But at the end of the day, if we want the base of rebuild, it's only that way. So we have to be considered ourselves like Gosh Baruch's children and make sure to love every single Yid like a brother and like a sister and with Zeche to be done from Gosh Baruch like his children and the Gemach Simitayva. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.